Before we dive in, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Matrix Sport, the sponsor of this week's episode and one of the fastest growing, largest digital asset platforms based out of Asia. More on them soon to come. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Mike Ippolito, and I'm joined, as always, by my unrepentant co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. Another great one, Mike. Two times this week, you get me. (laughs) I know. Well, people liked Incorrigible, so I was looking for stuff like that, and uh, you are unrepentant in many senses, in a very good way, in a very good way, I would say. (laughs) All right, let's get right into it this week. I know we're leading up to the 4th of July, so you guys don't want to hear us blather on too long, but like, we'll still give you the uh, the big stories of the week. Um, so here's what we're talking about this week. We're going to be talking about Xi's speech uh, that happened earlier this Wednesday. A lot of really interesting stuff to kind of dig into there, and we're going to get into kind of the context there and some of the reactions here over in the U.S., which is pretty interesting. Uh, next, we're going to be talking about the jobs report that just came out today, uh, which was a beat, uh, but it did not still hit that whisper number. So still fell below Wall Street expectations, but stocks went up. We're going to be talking about that. And finally, uh, it was a bit of a slow news week this week, but something that has not escaped our attention is what's going on with NYDIG, which continues to be maybe the best executing company in crypto along with FTX. They're doing a lot of really interesting integrations. and A lot of the infrastructure stuff they're doing has gone unnoticed. So we're going to dig into all that stuff. Uh, if Tyler can stay awake, uh, tough sleeping, <laughs> tough sleeping week this week for you, buddy. <laughs> very, very tough. Did not sleep much. Nightmare for three year olds is not fun. Oh, buddy, I I can only I can only empathize with that. I, I'm not a. You know what? You look lovely. You look lovely, Tyler. Um, oh, you know what? I actually want to do a shout out. This is uh, I think the first roundup they were doing that's sponsored by Matrix Sport. So you'll hear from them later, but. Uh, excited to have them on. Like genuinely, what an amazing company uh, they are. Honestly, in terms of what they're doing, so there's, there's going to be some ad roll that's coming through later. But genuinely, like super impressed with these guys. Highly recommend you go check them out. All right, now let's get into this story. Uh, this first story here, which is Xi's uh, speech. So I want to start with just kind of setting the scene about why Xi was giving this speech in the first place and what it kind of means. Um, So this Wednesday marked the 100th anniversary of the China Communist Party, the CCP founding, and Xi Jinping delivered a very fiery speech, which was largely seen as being aimed at the United States. To just give you guys an understanding, in case you didn't actually watch it, this speech was delivered to 70,000 members of the CCP at the rostrum of the Tiananmen Gate in Tiananmen Square. This is a very historical, uh, historically relevant scene for two, two reasons. So 72 years ago, Mao Zedong stood there and declared the People's Republic of China. So on the one hand, it's this very... It's a monumental uh, historical transition, right, that happened at this exact same place. At the same time, in 1989, you actually had Tiananmen Square, uh, which was kind of a, a black mark right, in that history of, of, uh, uh, of Chinese government in general, where obviously they, they murdered uh, several hundred or, or thousand uh, student protesters and kind of this days-long occupation. So really just a lot of interesting historical overtones going on there. Um, I, you know, th- there was a lot of different interesting things to kind of pull out, I think, in this speech. Um, you know, they touched on kind of the, the Uyghur situation. Uh, they said what Xi actually said was we will not tolerate sanctimonious preaching. Uh, there was some other great rhetoric that came out of this. There was like, you know, those who oppose us will be met with a steel wall. You know, like it was just I mean, it was just like some good old fashioned politicking speech, uh, very much seen as being kind of aimed directly at the U.S., um, especially with that sanctimonious preaching line. Um, Taiwan, it was a little bit divided uh, just because 
even though it looks like that's an important uh, item for them, there was no timeline around reunification. So markets kind of broadly saw that as positive. Uh, and I think that's going to be, you know, there's a lot of people that have come out and basically said, uh, like Mike Green and uh, Peter Zihan, that this would kind of be the year. Uh, it's it's a key element of, uh, you know, China's strategic objective is to reunite with Taiwan. And this would kind of be the year for them to do it. So yeah, I'll pause there. That's about as long as I can listen to myself talk. Tyler, I don't know how much you kind of paid attention to the speech, but what were your thoughts here? I didn't dig into it as deeply as you, but it's definitely heating up. I think we've talked about the China-US story previously Mm -hmm. in these podcasts, but like we're at almost like a Cold War type situation with them. And they seem to be very uh, vociferous in terms of their rhetoric towards us. And we're kind of soft on on our end uh, back at them, uh, relatively speaking. And I think people in the U.S. haven't really grasped uh, what's really going on there. Uh, Two of the biggest world economies basically clashing right now. And, you know, Xi has, has that autocratic power. And we're kind of caught up in, I think, um, a little, a little more bipartisan politics. So I don't know. My, my perception is we're going to probably have to be forced to. We're, they're going to put us in a position, likely over Taiwan, to to be a little bit more forceful on our end. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there there are two different ways to frame this, which is basically over the last 20 or so years, people in the U.S. have been kind of hearing this narrative that, hey, China is eating our lunch. In terms of GDP, they're going faster than us. They're going to overtake us as the world's largest economy uh, in a period of time. And, you know, if you look at the trajectories of growth, um, it tells kind of a a not so great story for the U.S. On the other hand, if you go back and look at the 1980s, the same thing was being said about Japan. And honestly, the manufacturing center of the world back then was Japan. They were so much more efficient than us. They kind of brought cultural stuff into it where they were like, maybe their way of life is superior to the U.S. Obviously, we kind of know how that story ends. So... And, and, and the question is, is, is how is it going to turn out for the U.S. and China this time? Obviously, nobody really knows. But I think one of the interesting things for me about this speech was just it highlighted how differently um, these two governments really think. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's lots of stuff under the hood, too. Like, I don't know if you caught this one. Um, basically, we the U.S. put the U.S. Congress put like a sanctions bill together that says, like, you can sanction companies on doing uh not not like basically like slave labor and and stuff and then china within two days later came back and and created an anti-sanction law and said that anybody who puts sanction on us we can go after them personally and their family as well and it's like this like little political battle that goes back and forth between china and the u.s uh and they just move so much faster because they they only have that that one party state um, and, and we'll probably have to make it like a really bipartisan effort to, to combat that because, you know, that's our, our biggest, uh, flaw, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, is it a feature or a bug? Because at the same time, that kind of strongman, it's just a trade-off in terms of governance, right? So a unified, uh, government like that, you know, at the same time, you basically seen Xi like successfully co-opt an entire country and there's a lot of. Look, I get that this is a very political, but there's a lot of human rights abuses going on over there as well. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of reasons why you should be concerned as a citizen. And even if you just look at how, 
you know, the U.S. response to COVID versus the Asian or Chinese response to COVID. On the one hand, you could say, wow, they really handled that a lot better than we did. On the other hand, look at how many personal freedoms they gave up by doing that. I mean, they were literally tracked when they left their apartments and, and came back and stuff like that. So I think mm-hmm. it's just a cultural decision on the part of the U.S. to say, hey, we don't want to we don't want to surrender that much power essentially to the government and our system right now. I, I, I think it's too far on the other side, but almost sometimes that indecision or just getting more people's opinions involved doesn't allow you to move as fast, but maybe with a government, you're not trying to optimize for efficiency or trying to optimize for something else. So, yeah. At the end of the day though, like look what happened in Hong Kong. Like they shut the CCP shut down just like last week the Apple Daily newspaper in Hong Kong, which was Jimmy Lai, a Democratic newspaper there that had been there forever, and literally put him in jail, shut down that outlet. And like the U.S. didn't say – it wasn't in any U.S. media, like zero U.S. media. Uh, and that's like a big – just like the Tiananmen uh, – the Xi's speech in Tiananmen Square, like these are overtures of basically saying like we don't want democratic rule. Like it's a, it's a shot across the bow to the U.S. We're not even paying attention to it, or, or it's not even becoming a big deal to like the U.S. because we're still caught up on like I don't know. I think wokeness and like ESG rather than like hey, there's this big country over here that's like smashing democracy and like probably moving across the ocean. I don't know. I think it's a bigger deal than than the mainstream media gives it credit for. So I think we should be talking about it more. Agreed. And, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, I mean, nobody's even really talking about these now, but the Olympics are coming up later this month. So that's actually – it's less than a month away. I think they start in Tokyo on the 23rd. Um, a lot of these international narratives tend to play out um, at the Olympics. So it'll be really interesting to kind of watch um, – that very public stage and how these different countries interact. I think you might see some like maybe friendly competition extending into slightly more than friendly competition between the two countries. So I don't know. I don't know. I will see how it all shakes out, but I would, yeah. I would keep two eyes on the Olympics. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah. I'm excited. It's also, you know, post pandemic, uh, kind of like back to normalcy. It'll yeah. also be exciting for, for humans for that reason. Yeah. And then the last thing we'll say just as well. So looking at uh, the Chinese stock market, the Chinese stock market actually tumbled uh, Friday today. We're recording this on the second, um, a day after uh, this speech was made. Um, So the CSI 300 index, which tracks the largest stocks listed in Shanghai or Shenzhen, tumbled 2.8%, led by declines in shares of distiller. I'm not going to try to pronounce that and financial conglomerate ping on insurance. Um, So what's interesting here uh, to note, because uh, apparently what analysts were looking for over there was signs of easing credit stress. Um, I will say there's a lot of pretty interesting implications, like political implications um, from this speech that seem to get ignored. Um, maybe this is me putting too much uh, weight uh, on on a speech like this. But at the same time, I think for a very long time, we've been kind of looking at the Fed and monetary policy is deciding what's going on in markets. Earlier this week, we talked about this shift from capital to labor if there's going to be that shift, um, which impacts basically all asset classes, that's going to be have to be driven by politics. So I think it's just something to note that market participants might be used to essentially ignoring 
politics or political statements where those might continue to play a more important role than they have for the last 20 or 30 years. So just something to highlight there. Couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. And like generational turning points, I think politics play an even bigger role. Like uh, I was going back to like FDR and the new deal. Like that was, yeah. was enormous and, and basically set up a lot of stuff, you know, for the next like 30 years. Um, but I agree. You know what's you know what's also fascinating is you're getting like I don't know if you saw the Charlie Munger interview on CNBC uh, this morning with Becky Quick, but he essentially kind of backed G against um, uh, Alibaba Jack Ma, and basically said like I'm glad G shut down Jack Ma and for bringing like banking to all the the Chinese masses, and it was very like. Uh, He's like, I wish we we had more of that in the United States, which is like kind of like <laughs> autocratic rule. It was a really weird comment he made from from someone who's supposedly like so American and you know free market type guy for his whole career. And it, it, you also have Larry Fink. I don't know if he, he said something similar where it's like markets love uh, certainty. They love like autocrats. They love, and which is just so not true. <laughs> It, yeah, it, they don't love that, uh, but it, it's a weird thing. Like these these guys at the top of the 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 spectrum are all kind of like backing a Chinese type system at this point, instead of like wanting free markets. So really, really weird divergences going on, in my my opinion. Yeah, I can't remember who said this, but someone um, to that exact point said. You know, the divide that you tend to see in crypto, people tend to ascribe it to age, right? So younger generations tend to, you know, buy into this stuff more and older generations tend to not. Uh, and the reason being is just age and young people like new things, et cetera, et cetera. But someone else, I can't remember who did this, they framed it in a different way and basically said, it's not about, that's the wrong causal thing. It's actually the amount of incentive you have to keep the current system running in the way that you do. And to whatever extent you essentially have exposure or an interest in the current system, you will not be interested in crypto, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, those are really, these are both really interesting instances of people that have a huge incentive to keep the status quo moving. Um, and -hmm. they're going against what they've said for like their entire lives prior. It's just, something's just not adding up, you know, something's just not adding up there. It just reeks of hypocrisy unless I'm not understanding it. Right. Like uh, you've controlled like what what Charlie Munger and Buffett have done. They're short volatility. You know, they're selling insurance, which is short volatility in my mind. And they're trying to basically put like a bell curve on, you know, outcomes. And if you can't control the banking system, then you can't really sell insurance and and risk based stuff. They rather, you know, they control everything and then they can figure out where the best risk reward is. And they'd rather that that power than actually giving, you know, people like Jack Maulers is trying to like give banking to everybody through like a decentralized system, which is such a a democratic and like free market based principle, which I think is like less hypocritical. And that's the younger generation that we're we're kind of like we don't have we've seen bailouts for the past fifteen years consistently 
for everybody that's been in power and, you know, generally, you know, look at the average CEO is like 68 years old and that keeps rising. So the, there's less equity in, in this system, yet all these guys want to keep it the same. Going. And it's, it's really fascinating that they haven't looked at the next generation and be like, hey, let's pass them down a great, like, well-functioning system. And, and now you, all these things are colliding at once. You know, you have the, the autocratic rule of China. You have, you know, the, the fourth turning in the United States. You have decentralized finance. And then you have a centralized system. And there, it's, I don't know how it's going to play out, but, you know, it's coming to a head somehow. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, I guess this is just the classic, uh, you know, Clay Christensen disruption framework, right? Where it's just incentives, right? They they have a large financial, you know, essentially equity stake in, in the existing financial system, and it prevents them from taking a serious look at um, this alternative. Um, I, I, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> anything other than that yeah um. well i think what you and i see is the the growth of a, a system like that is is usually stifled because there's so much bureaucracy in it at this point and you can't really grow whereas like in crypto things are growing hand over fist like new companies are popping up daily it's getting financed and you know two two billion dollars raised by Andreessen you know, just, just last week. And all these things basically have such growth to it um, and, and tailwinds. And we, we see that firsthand. I don't think like the Buffett and Munger, they, they want slow, predictable growth, which doesn't happen when demographics are rolling over. I think you have to I, go to these new areas. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. I, and like the other thing about disruption as well is that, you know, if you actually dig into the framework that that guy lays out, in his book is that it, the disruption comes from there's a lot like the I mean he uses it in the, within the context of companies so the incumbent it actually doesn't make business sense for them to focus on this new segment because the market for it doesn't quite exist yet so like he uses the example of IBM essentially selling mainframe computers and why they missed the personal computer so they, they, IBM, for, for a long time, when computers were much larger and more expensive, they would sell them to corporations, right? And there'd be these like $5 million accounts, right? They'd sell one mainframe with like all these services attached to be like 5 million bucks. Amazing, great business. So then all of a sudden, the advent of these new personal computers comes along and they're like, well, well I have to sell, you know, 10,000 of these personal computers to like equal one mainframe. It just doesn't even make sense, right? Mm -hmm. he, he, he argues the reason disruption happens is because it's not because they're lazy or there's bureaucracy. It's just like, look, this doesn't make business sense, right? Business principles tell me to focus on my bigger existing legacy business where I make more money. And that's why they all miss these trends because these markets don't exist yet. So if you look at something, hit me, what? Well, that's, that's a great transition into the next story, which is uh, Nidic, right? Man, yeah. Nidic is just... Because they're this really so doing that, right? Like they're... I'll let you speak, but they're they're trying to cause it from the ground up. And why don't you give us the yeah. breakdown? So I swear to God, I mean, Nidig is not a sponsor of this show. They're just uh, although Nidig, if you're listening, hit us up. Um, <laughs> basically, I, like I just so you know on the editorial side of our business, I've just been noticing these stories flowing through, which is like Nidig partnership here, Nidig partnership there, uh, and for whatever reason, I just decided to dig into it this week. 
And the breadth of partnerships that these guys are striking with traditional uh, banking, uh, you know, kind of service providers, credit unions, et cetera, is massive. And the stat that I want you guys to take away here uh, before I kind of get into some of these details is that NIDIG, across all their recent partnerships, will now support Bitcoin buying capabilities across 48.5% of all retail banking customers at U.S. financial institutions. That is absolutely unbelievable. I don't, maybe aside from Coinbase, no one company has done more to expose U.S. consumers to Bitcoin than NIDIG. What's going on, everyone? Excited to talk to you about one of my favorite new companies in the space, a company called Matrixport. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know we spend a lot of time talking about this crazy environment of low yields that we're all living in. The big question is, if inflation is around the corner, how are we all going to protect our wealth? Well, Matrixport has some really, really interesting solutions I think you should check out. And the big thing is, they, they do so many things, it's almost hard to cover everything in 30 or 45 seconds or whatever we have here. Two things that I want you to walk away with. One, they allow you to earn up to 30% yield. Two, they are leveling the playing field between institutional and retail investors. A little bit of background about this company. They are one of the fastest growing platforms based out of Asia. The really cool thing about these guys, they're literally a one-stop shop. Everything you need, custody, spot trading, OTC, fixed income, structured products, lending, asset management. These guys literally do it all. When they walk me through the demo, my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Here's what they've basically done. All those crazy structured products that are available to institutions that allow them to earn so much yield, they've basically taken them, packaged them up in a way that anyone can understand it, and they made it available to their entire audience of investors. That is just a freaking awesome thing to do. Very cool mission, but also it allows you to manage your risk in a super sophisticated way and earn huge, huge yields on this platform to protect you from the pernicious effects of inflation. So, for example, you can start earning 30% in APY on USDC today if you go to onthemargin.link slash matrixport. Again, that is onthemargin.link slash matrixport. I don't know what you're waiting for. Go check them out. Thank me later. Maybe aside from Coinbase, no one company has done more to expose U.S. consumers to Bitcoin than NIDIG. And here are some of their recent partnerships. So the one that got some attention this week was NCR. But recently, within the last couple of months, uh, they've announced partnerships with FIS, Fiserv, Q2, Alchemy, and then NCR. Um, so basically, to get into some of these, like NCR, it's this enterprise payments company uh, and basically, the partnership with NIDIG will enable 650 U.S. banks and credit unions to offer Bitcoin purchases to millions of customers. Um, so the partnership will provide an estimated 24 million customers with the ability to trade cryptocurrency on mobile applications developed by their payment providers. 24 million customers. That I mean, the onboarding here that's going on is unbelievable. Um, yeah. I think this stat, too, is like most consumers in america don't really trust like coinbase because of the mount gox stuff and they would rather own crypto in their own bank accounts which makes this move totally it's it's a huge huge move very under i agree yeah i agree um like most of the trust still exists within the within the banking system right mm -hmm. so I mean, this happens on the institutional side as well. David Mercer over at LMAX has done a great job of talking uh, on, on recent BlockWorks webinars and stuff about how if you're an institution in the space, like just getting banks involved, investment banks, um, 
it just greases the wheels, right? Because they have credit, they have longstanding relationships at these banks. Uh, they can work on credit. All, it, it can kind of fit within their current ways of working. And, you know, again, the, the framework to look at Bitcoin adoption is just to look at eliminating frictions and bringing capital on board. And the more you can do that, the more successful Bitcoin is ultimately going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think there is a question, it gets raised by guys like Ben Hunt, about what you're really doing then at the end of the day, right? Because the promise of Bitcoin is to bank the unbanked and by you know, slipping it into financial institutions, you're kind of losing some of the value proposition. I, I don't tend to think like that, actually, but it is worth saying that I think that's a noteworthy, that's something to point out, I would say. Yeah. Well. And I think if you have the ability eventually, like once the on-ramps get better and better and better and people are more familiar with the product, it's like the internet. Like you first, maybe I was, you were too young for this, but like when you'd have to have dial Like you'd have to dial up your internet and then like there was a process. It was hard to get on the internet sometimes. And now, you know, we all take that for granted. And so all the user faces are easy. So it's probably one of the first logical steps. And then in 10 years, we'll look back and be like, that was stupid. We own Bitcoin through our bank, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think, um, and I, I got to be careful with, with the amount of emotion that I let seep into this. Uh, David Shepard, shout out David Shepard, uh, calling me out in the YouTube comments. I'm going to call this the, the David Shepard uh, speed limit before when I start feeling myself get too emotional. But um Here's what I think. I think ultimately this is extremely bullish. I think takeaways from all these these partnerships that Nidig is leading is that the really great companies in crypto get built in bear markets, not bull markets. So mm. you can look across um, like Coinbase as an example of that. You can look at FTX as a much more recent example of that. Um, and you can look at Nidig. So all of these moves that aren't moving markets whatsoever right now when sentiment is down, you can bet that the next bull run, they're, they're going to reap the benefits of this in a huge way. So that's one mm-hmm. takeaway for Nidig. On the other hand, um, you know, just talking about, I don't know, I, I think I'm starting to see very differently kind of the uh, Bitcoin versus uh, some of the other communities in crypto, most notably uh, DeFi right now. And if you think about of Bitcoin as a store value play, right, against governments debasing their currencies, store value plays aren't permanent trades. They're just not, unless you're betting on the end of the world, uh, which I think a lot of gold bugs and, and Bitcoiners, honestly, that's what they default to. But I, I personally don't think that the world is going to end or we're going to be in dire financial straits forever. Uh, and I think when you look at something like DeFi, um, which what's so interesting about DeFi is it's just a, it's a developer, developer first kind of sandbox for creating financial applications. That's just that's a little bit more interesting. So when I, when I kind of look at those two spaces, um, I don't know. I think the DeFi side is a little bit more exciting right now. Um, yeah, but I'm although myself. this this Bitcoin DeFi stuff is starting to heat up. Like Dan Held wrote, you know, recently about Bitcoin being you know the best collateral and why you'd want to write DeFi on top of of Bitcoin instead of Ethereum. So I don't know. There's there's some battle going on there for sure. I want to be careful about how I say this next thing. I. I very much believe in Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin has a phenomenal future ahead of it. I very much believe in DeFi. I think DeFi has a phenomenal future ahead of it. I think Bitcoin DeFi is the new blockchain, not Bitcoin. I I don't know how to, yeah, because it doesn't make doesn't make much sense. 
Okay. Doesn't make sense. I, I, I haven't dug into it as much. I just know that like, you know, all the Bitcoin maxis are talking about it now. I don't know. You know, not, not only does it not make sense to me, why can't you just let Bitcoin be what it is? It's this beautiful thing. All of the design decisions that were made for Bitcoin were to make it perfect collateral. It's to make it secure uh, and uncensorable and all this stuff, which it's largely a treat. Why would you try to dilute that with the stuff that's going on? In D- it seems to – it doesn't really make sense. You're trying to jam something where it doesn't belong. You're actually diluting the core value of the asset, which is just safety, security, uncensorability. Um, I don't know. I just mm-hmm. – I really pretty strongly disagree with it. But um, And on the flip side to that is uh, Anthony Scaramucci's launching an ETH fund, right? The Mooch. Yeah, he yeah. is. Yeah, he is. Um, so, could be more institutional capital behind that. I think there will be. Um, all right, and then just the last story here, moving out of crypto for a little bit, um, is the jobs report that just came out. So, again, we're recording this on the second, but U.S. Uh, June non-farm payrolls rose 850k. Uh, even though the street was at uh, 716k, so it technically beat expectations in one sense, um, it didn't really hit that that kind of whisper number. So, basically, the way to understand this is that even though it beat Official expectations, it didn't beat the expectations of uh, collective investors. So it was still technically, depending on whose expectations you're looking at, it still came in below expectations. And the interesting thing to note there is that stocks actually rose. Uh, so again, this is kind of one of those potentially good news, bad news uh, type situations um, where even though jobs aren't coming back online as, as fast as we thought, um, stocks are still moving up. And it looks like that kind of uh, you know, pre-pandemic uh, paradigm. And actually, if you look at um, inflows and outflows of various ETFs, uh, you're seeing inflows back into into things like ARK and uh, and tech ETFs, and you're seeing outflows mm-hmm. in terms of uh, commodity um, ETFs, commodity-based ETFs. So, yeah, there that that divergence is really kind of bothering me because oil hasn't gone down, like. If you look at oil, it's at new highs. It's at 75 bucks a barrel in WTI. And like everyone's talking about, you know, the death of inflation. Like that's just that's the plug to everything is oil. So I don't know if it's just that, you know, there's no bond supply relative to the amount of money coming into there because like yields are going lower, the dollar's rallying. And just so many weird divergences are going on. I think the the actual stock market is going off up off a buyback bid because, like, if you look at uh, bond yields, they're at new lows. Like, high yield bond, you know, yield to worst is at new lows. Like, capital is so easy to come by. You just it, you issue debt and buy back your stock again, and, and we're seeing the the buyback announcements kind of mimic that as well. But you know, inflation is kind of ticking up. If you look at the consumer confidence inflation expectations, double line put this out, it's at 6.7% inflation is what consumers are pricing in for like the future inflation expectations, which is insane. Like 6.7%. Oil's gone up 53% this year. Yet, you know, the 10-year yield is still at 1.44%. So like ne- massively negative real yields are, are happening um, in my eyes if you really like account for inflation correctly. 
mm. which which to me is like okay yeah you can make your your bet on tech but like i don't understand why like gold's falling in that or, or bitcoin it doesn't i feel like we're in this little hiccup of wrapping our head around what's really going on yeah well they i mean it, it could just be that markets are confused right now but in, in terms of inflation um isn't isn't oil rising actually deflationary for economies right there's that stat we talked about a couple of weeks ago where it's like recessions that happen 100 percent of the time they're preceded by a doubling um in the price of oil in the preceding 12 months leading up that's actually technically happened that, that doesn't mean that every time oil doubles we get a recession what it just means is that every time there is a recession oil has doubled in the preceding 12 months leading up so i'm curious like do you, you view oil prices what oil prices are doing right now is inflationary or deflationary I'd say inflationary because you're not seeing the credit stress. If if there was a recession coming, you would see credit spreads widen. You'd see, you know, valuations of, of stocks come down, earnings growth, earnings expectations are rising. Like, so to me, that's inflationary. And they also have this infrastructure plan that should keep growth, you know, nominal GDP growth rising as well. So I think it's it's inflationary but like if if we did see credit spreads roll out like blow out bonds sell off stocks sell off and and oil rise then that would be the deflationary like holy crap get out of the way but right now that's not what we're seeing hmm. yeah is it i mean is it possible that this this environment that we're in right now actually looks not too dissimilar from where things were essentially pre covid right Although there, there are some key levels that have been uh, that they're like yields are lower, like yields people thought were low pre like going into COVID. They're even lower now, but it looks like they're just stabilizing around a lower level. Gold is doing nothing. Um, you know, it looks like tech stocks are set to rally. Uh, buybacks are coming back. It's almost like, hey, that little hick, this weird, weird year and a half, guys. Sorry about that. But uh, now we're back to the plan, you know, yeah. of pre COVID. Yeah, except unemployment is a lot higher and, you know, wages are rising. So, yeah. But I, I agree. Like, that's what you the capital... You and your details, Tyler. You and your details. Yeah. <laughs> Little thing yeah. like unemployment. Yeah. But it does It does feel like that narrative is back, for sure. I'm not, I'm not going to... I do have some more qualms than I used to about it. But, yeah, it, it feels like we might stay on that path. It does look overbought in the short term, though. I mean, look at the RSIs are are really high in in tech shares. So, yeah, I actually read. So, I mean, most of the rallies being driven by large cap tech, but actually, um, right now it's like fifty percent of stocks, and I forget like the S and P or the Nasdaq. I shouldn't talk about stuff. I'm not one hundred percent sure, but are actually in a downward trend. Uh, mm-hmm. So, below um, the hook. I, yeah, exactly right. It's which is which fifty day moving average, I believe. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's why I got you here. Uh, but yeah, so that so I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, it's kind of tough to, to fully wrap your head around what's going on. I feel like um, looking at the market, basically, I know what Double Line put out. I know the narrative that inflation is picking up. I understand the reasons why it should. But doesn't it seem like the market is saying that they don't expect inflation? Um, because yeah. it's not it's not that's not how the market is behaving, basically. The bond market is saying it's it's transitory. That's the bottom line. At the end of the day, it's like I don't know if oil goes up to a hundred and the bond market still doesn't react. Like then maybe <laughs> we're in a whole new world, I guess. Yeah. 
So. Now, can, walk me through logically here. So the, basically input or energy in general is being like the largest input cost for an economy in general. Is the idea of why oil would be inflationary because as that input cost rises, essentially sellers of goods and services need to raise their prices to compensate for that input cost going up? Yeah, or, or just eat it and then your margins get squished. Right. But, right. But theoretically, if we if oil goes up and then they pass it through to c- consumer, then the consumer wants rising wages and then oil goes up more, it's like that self-fulfilling cycle of inflation that we haven't really felt since the 1970s where it's yeah. like rising wages, rising oil, rising wages, rising oil, impacting eventually the corporate. Yeah. Well, the the big overhang there is not just uh, it, it, I guess it is all about just wage pricing power. So the big overhang there is essentially this enormous economy that we've co-opted their labor force in the form of China. And it, it, it is kind of interesting in that they look like they're trying to transition from a production based economy to more of a demand based economy, right? As they brought all these, you know, 850 million people out of poverty, uh, they essentially want a higher uh, you know, standard of living, and they're they're making that transition right now. So that could actually have huge implications in terms of, um, you know, just yeah. wages in general. That could that that could essentially drag global wages up uh, if China successfully makes that transition, which it looks like they're trying to do. Absolutely, and that's hard to. How do you manage that with like a finite amount of, I guess, uh, natural resources? You know, if if a billion more, 800 million more buyers of things have more pricing power or purchasing power, then watch out. And I think that's why you keep seeing these headlines from China like, oh, we're going to release stockpiles of this. We're going to make sure the, inf- the inflation's not bad. They keep like releasing their strategic reserves to keep that kind of under wraps. And maybe that's really the, the driving force of a lot of the deflationary things that are going on right now is is china releasing some of that stuff like copper you know yeah absolutely who knows all right buddy let's wrap it there uh a short show for the people this week are you you got any big fourth of july plans other than taking a nice long nap yeah hopefully a nap uh celebrate our uh independence do you know that uh you know British people call it a uh, Trader Day or something like that. <laughs> no <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty funny. Do that's, they really? That's hysterical. Yeah. All right, if you're from the UK and you're listening to this show, comment in the YouTube section about whether or not that's true, because uh, I'm yeah. very interested in, in knowing. Um, yeah. All right, everybody, this is a lot of fun. Uh, be safe out there. Uh, don't drink too much, um, or do, but just be safe about it. And um, we'll see uh, see you after the long weekend. Yep. Yeah. Take care.